Hi everyone, it's Guillaume from Startup Basecamp. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. During the show, you will have the opportunity to meet the best climate tech founders, investors, and experts from both Silicon Valley and around the globe. They will share with you their stories and personal journeys into this growing and exciting industry, giving you some insight into the ecosystems that help you to take part in the fight against climate change and benefit from the opportunities it can represent. Podcast is divided in two small interviews. During the first part, you will get to know our speakers, their perspectives on the climate crisis and how climate tech is changing the game. Second part of the discussion will be for members of our community who will learn the speakers' secret sauce on how to and share with you their unique expertise on topics such as fundraising, management, strategy and so on to help you to become a better leader in your field. So before we start, I would like to quickly share what we are doing at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech founders in accessing resources and gaining visibility with investors they seek. Our initiatives include a membership-based community platform offering access to a dedicated Slack group with a growing number of founders, experts and investors from around the world and a series of exclusive content such as interviews, weekly job listings, events, and our quarterly online pitch of night opportunity. But more than a place where you can learn, exchange, and grow, we are building a matchmaking service to facilitate connections between our members and top investors and experts in the field. And soon, alongside with other top investors, we will be launching a small fund to co-invest in the growth and acceleration of our members. Finally, all of this is possible because of your support and donations. We are a small self-funded team and we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. So please share one episode with a friend and subscribe to the channels. As an added bonus, we will plant a tree for each of our subscribers each time we reach 1,000 new fans or donors. Do not hesitate to connect with me via social media or email guillaume at Startup Basecamp. Thanks a lot for listening. I hope to get in touch with you soon. And now, let's go for the show. Hi, everyone. There is a new episode of our founder series. We are sitting down with Marcus Lovell, CEO of Neutral. Neutral is the first pure carbon neutral food company in the US and works directly with dairy farmers and beef ranchers to mitigate their climate impact and deliver carbon-neutral food products to consumers in more than 2,000 locations. It was utterly fascinating to converse with Marcus and learn the ins and outs of the dairy industry and how Neutral is tackling the emissions of a notoriously difficult sector to decarbonize. Marcus first got involved in the sector when he came to the US 20 years ago to run a family dairy farm. He has since worked with the best at Alphabet, Breakthrough Energy Ventures and the Harvard Entrepreneurship Program in a variety of leadership roles. With his love for the countryside and farm life, he naturally found his way back by combining his business acumen, passion for climate change and love of the country through his work at Neutral. As 93% of Americans, have dairy milk in their refrigerators, it's imperative that the sector's emissions are tackled head-on immediately. And Marcus is just doing that with Neutral. During the episode, we go to ask him 
where do the main dairy industry emissions come from how does he go about decarbonizing the industry how does he get farmers on board and what are the future market opportunities for companies in the space the second part of the show marcus explains how he got celebrity investors such as lebron james or mark cuban to embrace his vision and invest in the company he will also share how he has sold his story and now how he keeps the smile on his face despite the workload marcus welcome to the show hi marcus welcome to the tech for climate podcast i'm super happy to have you here with us today I believe it's going to be a great opportunity to hear your story and learn more about your exciting adventure with Neutral to decarbonize our food system, starting with the dairy industry in the US. So welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Guillaume. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to so, this conversation. Thank you, Marcus. Very excited as well. So before we start, that's the tradition here. Can you give us a 30 second intro about Neutral? Neutral, the first a uh, pure carbon neutral food company in the US. That's who we are. We work directly with dairy farmers and increasingly beef ranchers to mitigate climate impact. And we bundle that uh, reduction, that mitigation, that sequestration with our products uh, to sell uh, food staples, most importantly, food staples, because that's uh, that's where the impact is. So we're, we have a milk product, we have, we've launched a butter product, and we'll have, we have a cream half and half product, um, but you'll see it's increasingly in stables. And we believe in a carbon neutral food aisle uh, in the US and actually beyond the US too. Uh, and it's a way that consumers can directly um, influence, um, uh, directly influence ag agriculture. So that's who we are. So let's start from the top. Can you tell us a bit more about your personal story and background? I mean, what are you passionate about? What do you love to do besides uh, leading neutral? What makes you feel inspired or like your best self? As I always ask, who's Marcus? Well, thank you for asking that question, Guillaume. I am, I suppose I've always been a startup person. Uh, I've done startups most of my life, uh, small companies, though I have, uh, I have worked in some big companies as well. Um, and but I came to America about 20 years ago uh, and uh, I came to America curiously to run a family dairy farm. Um, it wasn't what I was doing before. Uh, it's not what I do full time now, but for about three to four years, I ran a dairy farm. Um, and that particular piece of work, uh, and I sit on that dairy farm today, that particular piece of work has defined a lot about uh, what I'm now doing in, uh, at Neutral. And in fact, I look at this farm in an entirely different way because it literally because of the last year or two uh, of the work I've done with uh, climate and with climate change. So uh, you'll see that as a theme. Um, I love being here. I love being out of the country. I love being on the farm. And I think that has increasingly defined who I am and how I think about things uh, and trying to connect climate as we are in, indeed through the, through the product. Uh, back through to what we're doing with food and agriculture is incredibly important. I think there's a growing realization that wasn't here five, ten years ago that, and I think consumers understand, people understand that food and agricultural systems have an enormous impact, enormous impact on on climate, uh, and for the good and and for the bad. And I think, uh, I mean, that number can be as high as 37% uh, in one of the IPCC reports. When you look at systems, that's food and agriculture systems, that transportation relating to that. Um, 
you know, those numbers, we can argue about whether those numbers 20%, 30%, 37%, but it's a very big pillar of climate change relates to food and agriculture. Anyway, well, I'm sure we're going to dig in on that. Before, yeah, so before we, uh, we jump into, into that, and thanks for, for sharing uh, you know, this inter interesting part of, uh, of your story, like uh, being a, a dairy farmer uh, as well and moving, uh, moving to the US uh, for, for that. But uh, I saw also that uh, you have this um, you know, incredible also, uh, I would say, more large corporate and founders uh, you know, experience. Uh, you also uh, uh, are entrepreneurs in Artvart, which I don't know exactly what uh, it involves but uh, uh, definitely I'm sure there's uh, exciting things that you're doing there uh, supporting breakthrough energy venture so along that journey besides the really like on being on the ground on the dairy site uh, on the on the farmland I would say what has been during this more like uh, corporate and, and founding journey that you had so far one or two maybe pieces of uh, experience that in a way gave you an edge to uh, lead uh, neutral today Okay. Okay. Something that's relevant for, for your audience. I think, I mean, I've done a lot of startup work as I mentioned, but I've also done a lot of startup cleanup work, I think is I, for, a, for about a decade, I worked with uh, new, you know, Northeast venture capital firms sorting out, um, well, I don't know what was maybe politely called their problem children, um, but companies that perhaps weren't working quite as well as they should um, had, had market issues, board issues, financial issues, even legal issues. So I did a, a fair amount of work sorting out companies. Um, it's really hard, uh, but it's surprisingly uh, rewarding when you when you have some kind of success. As I always say to uh, VCs, I mean, it's all the first. If you have ten companies in your port, port, portfolio, the first two will just go screaming out of the gates. You don't even need to sit on their boards. They don't really need any of your help. All you do is worry and regret that you weren't able to put more money into them. Um, and then you have maybe your bottom two that, you know, once you've closed that deal, you go, oh my God, why did I make those investments? Uh, why didn't I think that through? Um, and then in the middle, you have maybe six of the 10 that just need a lot of help and a lot of nursing. And that's often where the sort of major, if you like, the sort of 1x, 2x return of a, of a fund comes from. You just make sure they get through the process. Uh, they at least return your money and do hopefully better than that. Um, I think that's a really in important area and often gets overlooked. Uh, there's probably very little you can do about those bottom two. Uh, and as curiously, there's probably very little you can do about those top two. In that middle, ground there's a lot of work to be done I, and i did and i enjoyed that so that was um one of the um yeah, pieces of background if you like that's relevant to what i'm doing i may also have worked i've been fortunate enough to work at google i've uh, i've worked at jp morgan i've worked at goldman sachs and i've done a number of um another another uh, number of other um large entities um, and I think that's always helpful because I'm always I'm always shocked when I go into those organizations, the, just the depth and level of resources that are available to one. Um, and it's kind of uh, it's it often very productive uh, times because you have access to so much uh, computing power, people and access to, 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 to customers. Um, often there are a bunch of uh, 
constraints in, in large organizations, which maybe stops you doing the things you would like to do. But it's a reminder of what it's like having access to those resources. So I'm very grateful for the time I've spent in some of those larger organizations. So in all of this uh, and this whole journey that you had, like, uh, what was in a way your, uh, your driver uh, to jump into this uh, climate tech industry, as we call it today? Do you have any like specific haha moment uh, that uh, you can record or would you find as such? Well, I was lucky enough, I am lucky enough to sit on the commercial advisory board of Breakthrough Energy. So I, I watched an extraordinary number of uh, fantastic uh, companies go through that portfolio. Um, I think they're now in excess of 100 companies. Um, I was fortunate enough to be able to um, help out and advise on this very, very small startup. It was two people uh, a year and a half ago. Um, and um, they needed a CEO, so I was able to jump in and do that. So uh, that, uh, and, and you, so the question, I suppose, was was why that company rather than many of, the, many of the other companies. And I think it goes back to that dairy story and trying to make sense of land and make sense of agriculture, um, see food as a, as a mechanism for really driving uh, climate change. And, and uh, you know, in, in curiosity, the company's become even more than just and carbon, carbon neutral, the company's called neutral. It's pretty clear what we do, but it's, it's about more than that. It's about biodiversity. It's about land management. It's about nutrient management. It's about animal welfare. It's even about rural equity. I mean, I'm not sure that, you know, this tiny company can manage all those things, but all of those things sort of come together uh, and that make it, makes it particularly fascinating for me. So it's, and, and, and it's, it feels existential to me, the importance of working and making sense of uh, of food and agriculture in this country. So before we start uh, going into details about neutral, uh, I'd like to, to zoom out as we usually do on this show and really try to understand the overall context that uh, you're navigating on. So let's try to get your overview on the, the so-called uh, dairy industry landscape today. Uh, I'd like to start maybe with your uh, insights and data point regarding, and you already mentioned uh, some figures at the beginning of the, the conversation, but in terms of uh, you know quantity of, of emission that uh, the dairy industry can represent uh, the type of source uh, that you find, I mean, do, that those emissions comes from, uh, you know, in this dairy value chain, I would say, and the potential impact that it can have on, uh, on climate change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we did a lot of work, a lot of analysis on food systems and where the emissions were coming from. Uh, and the emissions come from, to a very large extent, from animal proteins. Um, not just animal proteins, but the, uh, the, the process of creating the feed necessarily for animal proteins. So that's why you see us involved in, in milk, uh, in, in, in butter, you'll see us in other dairy products. It's why you will see us involved in, in beef, because beef perhaps has the largest footprint of, um, of all kind of major staples. Um, so when we graphed all of this up, it was clear that something like 80 plus percent of the emissions related to animal proteins. Um, and you could argue, well, why not just do an alternative protein or why not do uh, a plant-based alternative? And I'm a big fan of those, actually. I'm a really big fan of those companies. Uh, and there's some of these extraordinary companies and products started. But the, the truth is 93% of Americans, 93% of American households have dairy milk, 
in their refrigerator. So that's where they are today. Um, and that's where the impact is today. So you need to work with uh, that. You need to work with those uh, dairy farms. You need to work with uh, those beef ranches uh, because that's, that's where the impact is. And um, so when we, when we look at that impact, when we look at that impact and we see where it's coming from, it's, it's significantly dominated by the on-farm emissions. And unlike some other products uh, where the manufacturing process may be dominant or the transportation process may be dominant, or even the consumer end may be dominant in, in, in animal proteins. Uh, and I, you, know, you can look at say uh, milk as an example, 72%, um, so, like, so over two thirds of it relates to on-farm emissions whereas the the remaining uh, piece relates to say six percent might be processing or four percent packaging or eight percent transportation or seven percent real or consumer or post-consumer waste so only that sort of that, that that small minority relates to everything beyond the farm gate so if you're going to do something about emissions in agriculture and animal agriculture and that's really where the emissions are coming from you need to do uh, you need to work on the farm so all of our focus and what we do is work with uh, farmers and ranchers to help them and never tell them by the way and we can talk about that um, but to help them mitigate those emissions so if we double click on uh, the, the really like the on-farm emissions uh, per se if you could tell us a little bit more like where are they coming from in which state of the uh, which state of the, the value chain of it and uh, how eventually, like, um, I mean, which one do you think are the, the most significant that needs to be monitored? And what are the alternative or solution uh, existing to mitigate those, uh, those emissions at those really like, in a way, granular level during this uh, value chain of uh, dairy production on farm? Okay. So, I mean, again, so when we look at that vast bulk that comes from on farm, again, it's split into roughly three pillars. Uh, one relates to manure and manure management uh, and the emissions that relate to that. And we can talk about that in a moment. Another one relates to the enteric emissions, which is the, the rumen emissions from the cow's stomach, the, the methane that's coming out from the uh, stomach. And that's enteric. So that's the no. And then the last third is really all of the, the sort of crop management um, and all of the bits that go around with um, nitrogen on the on the fields um, managing all the other parts of the of, of the farm activities so there's a sort of third 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 uh, and we've got projects in each one of those and when you look at uh, them in itself like you mentioned turtle turt um, what is the specific like uh, you know ways that were applied in the past before you guys uh, come into play uh, and that were like strongly uh, you know creating uh, greenhouse gases and what are in a way the solution that you deploy uh, today that are existing to mitigate uh, those uh, greenhouse gas uh, emission right so we we generally um, work with smaller family dairy farms in the sort of 150 to 200 cow uh, sort of region, if you like, average 150, 200 cows. So small, um, certainly small compared to the very, very large dairy farms. Um, most of the manure management uh, used to, historically used to go into uh, a manure pit. And a manure pit or a manure lagoon is almost a sort of perfect breeding 
breeding ground for methane. I mean, if you couldn't, you couldn't design a more anaerobically perfect um, uh, system for producing methane. So uh, many of the smaller farms don't uh, lend themselves to the sort of high fixed costs and civil engineering costs of, a, of an anaerobic digester, though we have invested in those as well. Um, and so we're doing probably more simpler uh, techniques, things like solid liquid manure separation, where you're really pulling out the volatile solids, the volatile manure solids, and separating them out from the uh, fr from the liquids. And in doing so, you, you're basically stopping almost completely the methane production. You're incidentally creating a dry, uh, uh, much more concentrated compost um, that the farmer can then use. And that, you know, every time we go on to a, do a project, it, there's almost always a co-benefit related to it. And in this particular case and on several of the projects we've done this um, the farmer is then transporting that so rather than transporting liquid manure which is expensive um, because just the sheer volumes you have to move you can now uh, transport or he or she can now transport the the, the solids um, which is a fraction of that and then uh, and then reincorporate those in the field so that's that that's that's certainly one of uh, a number of examples on the manure so side in, in which operation that you uh, that you look at right now within this uh, all the you know dairy value chain that is sounds to I mean look like um, very extremely hard in a way to decarbonize and, and maybe that could be a missing opportunities for you know uh, young startup out there that uh, uh, maybe are working on something like that in the lab or that uh, you know maybe should like uh, start to work on because you really see that here it's like there's a, a big challenge. Do you have any no, examples? What a great, I mean, you, you make a great point. There's a, it's an enormous, I mean, cliche, but it's an open field as it were. I mean, there's so much you could do. Uh, I, you know, I don't know how we're going to do all of this. I mean, I know we've got 10, 20 projects, interventions going on, and we're doing some very standard ones that the USDA would recognize and the industry would recognize, but we're also doing some quite uh, innovative things. Um, you know, all I know is that that's really an enormous source of emissions. Um, there are a bunch of other things that we want to resolve in agriculture, you know, which brings in things like biodiversity and nutrient management and animal welfare. But uh, so there's an enormous opportunity to do that. And it's a journey, really, for, for our customers. Um, and, you know, we have to be incredibly transparent. Some of the things we do won't work. And some of the things we're already doing probably won't turn out to have the mitigation that we're anticipating, but we will we will document that and we will um, and we'll make sure we sh we share that everybody. So I think there's an enormous there's, there's so much impact there uh, that 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 I think um, there will be lots of lots of new solutions. I mean, even on the on the on the enteric emission side, which is the um, which is a big source of uh, and people increasingly understand that cows uh, methane from their stomach is a is a big impact, has a big impact. Um, we're doing a, a bunch of trials with um, uh, Aspergopsis and other seaweed trials, and we're super excited about that work that we're doing. But we're also doing some really interesting, innovative work uh, with uh, new types of forage planted in or overseeded into pastures. Uh, and I think this is really exciting work because uh, if we can have a mitigation of that, if we can have a mitigation of that enteric emissions through um, a more biodiverse, more rich pasture, then we've done two things as well. We've created more biodiversity. We've created a, a more interesting um, pasture 
more phytochemicals. Um, uh, you know, I think that the cows will be healthier in addition to mitigating, pushing down that uh, uh, enteric methane. So some of the work we're doing with what we call tannin rich uh, tannin because of tannin being the uh, the bitter and acidic substance that you see in, say, in a red wine or, or, or grapes or, or in uh, or in the edge of a of a, of a sour um, pear. Um, these 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 mitigate the impacts on the microbes that produce the the methogenic microbes that produce that methane. So this is incredibly powerful if we can we can do that. So we're doing some very exciting work with some. Um, colleagues and friends over at Oregon State University uh, and and Colorado State University, particularly Oregon State University, on planting different different crop mixtures. Um, I'm really excited about that because I think um, pasture-based animals is a is an important part of the future. So, and thank you so much for sharing really like uh, a little bit more in depth uh, what's happening on the, the the farmland and all of those innovation that uh, you guys are contributing to uh, to put in uh, in place and, and in a way coordinate. So, uh, I like to take a little bit more like a, a zoom out in terms of like the, the regulatory like uh, framework. Like, I mean, if you look at like the dairy uh, industry today, like and ways to decarbonize it. I mean. I believe like if we had the journey, the end of the journey would be 100, 100. We probably are like 15, 20 uh, in, in terms of the, of the scale. So what are the, the regulation currently like in place to support and accelerate the decarbonization of the dairy uh, industry? And which one maybe according to you uh, is missing and should in a way uh, be passed to uh, really like go mainstream in a way? Mm. Well, not a lot of regulation. I mean, it's always like, as with so many things, it's stick and carrot, uh, and most of it is carrot at the moment. Uh, I think the Inflation Reduction Act is an important piece of legislation. I think that provided uh, an impetus, only an impetus, uh, and it's going to need a lot more than that—a catalyst of twenty billion dollars towards climate smart practices on farms. So I think that's a. I think that's a great, really exciting and a great step forward. So that was a piece, recent piece of legislation. Um, on the regulations, and there have always been nutrient management plans. Um, the states are, are, are tightening those up. Um, as you tighten up your nutrient management plans, you, you're ultimately controlling the amount of nitrogen, uh, phosphorus and potassium as well, but mainly nitrogen that you're putting onto, onto fields. That has an impact because we now know that nitrouse uh, oxide, which is a, a big contributor, a, 200 times the impact on a per molecule basis of carbon dioxide, 200 times more, uh, is um, it comes out as a result of, of putting too much nitrogen on field. So you, you're seeing you're seeing pressure coming from from different areas. Um, but no, not a lot of regulation in the U.S. You're seeing uh, interesting um, and uh, you're, you're you're seeing things in in Holland and in Ireland and in New Zealand, where uh, the governments are, are beginning to start to push the dairy industry into controlling some of these emissions, and those are not always going very well. But in the US, there's very little direct regulation in this area. Um, we're trying to, by the way, we're, you know, not surprising the US believes in market-driven approaches, and, you know, there's nothing more market-driven about what we're doing. We're trying to say to consumers, no, if you buy this milk, you will create this change. And it's very hard for a consumer. It's very hard for a consumer to 
have an impact on the maritime shipping industry or uh, the extraction of lithium or co cobalt. I mean, how do they how do they even begin to to, to have it and to start there? But with their consumer choices uh, in the in the supermarket in the grocery store, they can actually start to direct. And so our covenant, if you like, our our compact or our covenant with consumers is that the more milk you buy, the more these products, the more projects we'll do on farms, and we'll bring you along that journey. We'll tell you uh, exactly what we're doing. That's pretty powerful. It's pretty powerful, uh, and we think it's we think it's there. We think it's nascent. I don't think it's happened. I think there are very few brands that have done that. We hope there will be others. Uh, you see these incremental um, these incremental claims by brands, which is good. It's exactly what they should be. But it's always the brand first, and in addition, we're doing X, Y, Z. In addition, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2030, or in addition, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2050, or we've done this project. And that's great, but we're sort of kind of like 180 degrees. It's a point of view change. No, no, today, today, I, mean, cause I just have one on my desk. Today, we're going to be carbon neutral today. And that's what we do. That's all we do. And we're going to link you directly with our farmers in on that journey. And we've got some things right. Uh, and we'll get some things wrong, but we'll sure as hell make sure that you know as we go along. So it's really about making consumers aware that they can make a difference today. I think it's a perfect, uh, you know, uh, segue to uh, uh, for the, the the last question of this uh, section before we we dive uh, a little bit more into the into the company. Um, so as everyone knows, uh, there's always some risk of uh, of controversy around like um, green or neutral products which are going you know mainstream and in a way are not staying at the farmer's market uh, level of magnitude or scale uh, often consumer might be suspicious or and thinking of like maybe there's some uh, some sort of greenwashing here it's very hard for us to uh, verify uh, what uh, the brand is like uh, giving us here so according to you uh, what is the, the, the real demand from, you know, consumer, which I believe can be translated into uh, into purchase adoption level for those greener products? And and what uh, is important to be done and communicated on the brand side in order to build trust or rebuild, uh, you know, the, the trust? What needs to change to accelerate those uh, uh, market adoption and, and avoid uh, this greenwashing uh, that can be present as well? Mm -hmm. It's a great question. I think you know, there is a there is a dissonance there. There's clearly a dissonance. Fifty four that fascinating Yale study away back, and I think it's probably moved on from here. Fifty four percent of Americans are alarmed or deeply concerned about climate change. Now, if those words mean anything at all, alarmed or deeply concerned, that surely that translates into some sort of purchasing, some lifestyle choice, some point of view, some purchasing decision, how you run your life. But it doesn't really. Uh, the number of real purchases is, is, is far less than that. So I think either the brands have done a poor job communicating, maybe the products aren't there yet. Um, but at some point, if those words mean anything at all, they're going to flip around and that's going to drive consumers will drive a lot of change here. Um, I think green washing, I think consumers are um, right to be skeptical. Um, and I think the only answer to that is to be as incredibly transparent as possible. And we are 
attempting to do that. It's sort of, I almost think it doesn't apply to us. Of course it does, Guillaume, but it, 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 because that's all we do. I mean, our brand is entirely based on the work we do on farms and, and how much change we can create. It's not incremental to us. It's not peripheral. It's not a proxy. It's all that we are. So I hope the consumers will see that with us. But I think it's a consumers are wide and they're, and, and they're watching very, very closely and they, they can see it. And by the way, you, you don't get this stuff right. Um, the, the consumers will know. Um, we, I mean, we do a lot of things with our brand. And we, um, we have our, uh, we account for carbon on a monthly basis. We have third, third party orders, SCS uh, have audited us as, as carbon neutral. Um, we have an incredibly strong scientific uh, advisory board and advisors. I mentioned Oregon State, I mentioned um, Colorado State University, Penn State, Arkansas University. Um, we have incredibly strong uh, scientific advisors and the core of what we do is, is science led. The understanding where, when I mentioned those numbers about where the carbon impact comes from on a farm, it comes from a deep amount of work that we've done with our, and with Dr. Greg Toma, who's a sort of the seminal expert in this area, and understanding at a very deep level where those emissions are. So we have great science, uh, we have third party auditors, and we are who we are. That's, you know, there's not, that's not a person in the company that doesn't believe in what I genuinely can say that there's not a person in the company that doesn't believe in what we're doing. Uh, maybe it's just it's just you know meet us at a an exhibition, meet us at a conference, meet us in our offices. It's just, or meet us most importantly meet us on a farm. Um, it's just who we are. Uh, and the, our our challenge though is now is translating that to consumers and um, and getting them to to see us as, as a vehicle for change as a conduit for change. So let's go deeper now on, uh, into, uh, into neutral in itself. Like, can you refresh us a little bit on the, uh, the story behind uh, those two co-founders that uh, therefore you met? Uh, what was the, the initial gap they, they identified uh, that led to the, the current version of, uh, of neutral? And in a way, why did neutral uh, have to exist? I mean, you mentioned it gave us already uh, pieces of the, the answer, but if you could encapsulate that uh, in a in a short seg uh, segment. I think it was a I think it was an insight, and that others have had too, um, but haven't necessarily acted on in quite the same forceful way as this company has. Is that consumers are kind of looking for a way to express their climate anxiety, to find a way to do something. They're constantly asking, particularly when you ask your children, and, and they, what, what can I do? What, what, what actually can I do? Uh, and that's really hard. And there was this is this vacant white space, which was, well, you can do it. We all now know that food and agriculture has this monster impact. Well, you can do it through your, your choices there. As I said, you, it's very hard with maritime shipping to, to, to make an impact. So I think that was the... That was the key insight, um, and it was and one. And I think we'll see other people in this. And I, I encourage other people to come into this sector. And we saw Kroger's the other day announced a, a carbon neutral egg. I think it's in selective stores, maybe the end of this year, early next year. I'm amazed actually how much white space we, we've been given as a company, uh, because this stuff seems too important. Um, and you know, we when I joined uh, a year and a, just over a year, a year and a half ago, or, or um, there were. Two, Two of us in the business at the time, uh, or two, two two extra people, uh, two people, two fantastic people in the business at the time. But uh, we 
have gone from 30 stores uh, to over 2,000 stores in nine months. Um, we're now in over 2,000 stores across the United States in Whole, in Whole Foods, in uh, Sprouts, in Target, in, in uh, a lot of, in, about 45% of the natural independent stores. Um, and I think people are, are react, reacting to it. It's been, uh, I mean, we've got masses of work to do to make the sort of impact that we want to make. I mean, so I think this, this core, and it's not, it certainly doesn't come from me, but I, mean, I think it may come directly from Bill Gates. I think when he set up Breakthrough Energy, and we touched on Breakthrough Energy earlier, we set up Breakthrough, he had this concept of a half a gigaton. Not that every single company in the portfolio has to mitigate half a gigaton a year of emissions. By the way, just for your uh, listeners, there's probably 51 gigatons a year emitted um, uh, from, from human-generated um, sources, 51 gigatons. Uh, so half a gigaton uh, is 1% um, of that, so a significant amount. So he's not saying that every company needs to do because it's an enormous amount, but every company has, needs to be involved in an industry or be part of a catalytic process or be able to nudge something forward that can make that kind of impact, which is why Though I think there's some fantastic discretionary products out there, whether like different products uh, touching, uh, touching the, the, the meat industry as well. But the most uh, critical part, and I think probably one of the most challenging part is really like this support uh, on the land that you do with like with the farmers himself. And I'd like to, uh, to dig a little bit more into the, you know, if you could walk us through the, the, the process, uh, how does it work when you guys choose like uh, to partner with uh, one of those, uh, those farmers? I mean, uh, what is the, the process to uh, get uh, neutral uh, involved? Uh, what type of emission do you have to, to calculate? I mean, do you guys develop uh, your own uh, software capabilities or do you have like sensors? Um, and, um, you know, what are the, the, the reporting and then uh, the, the, the real support that you can give to those, uh, to those farmers? I mean, if you could help us to visualize that uh, old value chain uh, that helps you to really have this uh, uh, high quality uh, product uh, and then therefore be able also to uh, compensate and offset uh, really what has been not uh, changed thanks to the action that you, uh, you put in place. What's your secret sauce, in a way? <laughs> um, well, going on to farms is, to me, one of the great privileges of this job. To be able to walk around a herd, to be able to talk to dairy farmers in particular, though increasingly uh, beef uh, ranches as well. It's just a complete pleasure to do that. Well, first of all, one of the things you do when you walk onto a farm is, is, is ask a, a bunch of questions. You certainly don't tell a farmer. I learned that very early on. Uh, what to do. Um, we find that nearly all farmers have a have a long list of, of projects they would like to do. Often they just either there's an education piece, there's an advice piece, there's a financial piece um, necessary to sort of nudge them forward. We are often the catalytic money that makes a project happen that, that wouldn't otherwise have happened. I mean, USDA may have, or sorry, NRCS uh, may have made a, a, a cost share the farmer, him or herself, may well have um, be prepared to put some money up, but they just it's something. There's just something missing, and often we've come onto a farm and provided that last piece of finance and advice that's done that. Um, you're right about measurement, reporting, and verification. That's absolutely critical to what we do. We have a lot of uh, we've developed a lot of protocols around and continue to develop protocols around these interventions. So we have, think we have a very good understanding of each of these interve interventions, and it's, it's a growing list the whole time because 
you know, I'm sure in a few years time we'll be doing projects that we won't, don't even conceive of now. Um, we need to report on that and we need to verify that. And we need to monitor that over time because we're not going to bring it through like that into our carbon accounting saying we have mitigated or sequestered that until we know for certain we have. So we have a lot of trials going on with universities uh, in parallel. So software protocols, data management and a big farm deal, a uh, big farm team uh, ran run by a fant fantastic person and Ray Hill who runs runs out who she herself um she's been on a number of podcasts she herself you know a fifth generation nebraskan farm uh, farming family just you know and she and an incredibly talented carbon and farming team are going onto farms and doing this um and uh, our job is to scale that we we were worried about scaling but it hasn't proved to be a problem we feel that we can scale our farm projects alongside um you know our product sales and we and we need to do that obviously because that's our that's our covenant so before we uh, we cover a bit more like the the, the scalability of uh, your operation, I'd like to just double click on the on the farmer per se. I mean, uh, and I know per experience as I'm uh, uh, also from the, the countryside that uh, that farmers can be you know very reluctant or suspicious uh, for changes coming from you know people who are not from the land sometimes or from the city uh, in itself. So. When you guys started to, to collaborate and you mentioned uh, part of your uh, you know, team, uh, you have someone who, uh, in a way, I believe, speaks the same languages. But what was the initial maybe challenges that you, uh, you guys have to onboard uh, those, uh, those farmers? And, uh, and, and in a way, what needed to be done uh, to, to convince them to, to work with you? What was the, the, the key elements there? Wow. It's... I mean, if you sit down and spend enough time and listen and you genuinely want to help these farmers make changes that are positive, there is no resistance. And there just isn't because people, I mean, I don't think I've ever had a bad conversation with a farmer. Um, but it is a, it is a manner that you have to approach that, as you say, as you said, you, you yourself from an ex-farming family, you know what it's like. Um, I think most farmers want to do this work they're one of the few groups of people i've said it before one of the few groups of people that think multi-generationally they think about their children and they think about their grandchildren in a way that a lot of traditional capital if i can anonymize it like that does not think so they see themselves as stewards of the land often the kind of commodity-like system that we operate in the modern agricultural systems that we operate in don't allow them to be the stewards that they rightfully should be, but they absolutely believe they are and can be. Um, and we need to find a way of helping them do that um, rather than being trapped in a form of agriculture that continues to lose soil, uh, have nutrient runoff, perhaps to create really quite nutrient poor food. I mean, I think there's such an interesting amount of science now coming up about you know the the nutrient density of food whether that be in in corn or vegetables or all meat entirely dependent on the, the farming systems that supported that so farmers want to do the right things they're often constrained um and then if we can just be a small nudge and help in that area and i hope it'd be a very large nudge and help because I'm very ambitious for neutral, not because I'm, I'm, I'm ambitious for the numbers so much financial. I'm, I'm ambitious because 
we can make real change. We can consumers by buying neutral foods, um, not just our neutral foods, but but neutral foods can make can make real change. That's incredibly cool. So, a couple of more questions before we uh, we move on with uh, this first part of the interview. Uh, as I mentioned before, and I think which is and you, you show us uh, here for the people watching the the, uh, the video and the visual of this uh, this conversation, uh, this uh, labeling and this packaging um, that uh, you guys decided to to go with. I mean, why making this strategic choice at first? Like, uh, and is it more expensive? Do you have like a, a large green premium that uh, needs to be applied to this uh, this those dairy product uh, as of today? Uh, is it something that you uh, uh, can therefore like uh, control better uh, in terms of quality, in terms of marketing and branding, and also uh, maybe uh, allow the, the farmers, the producer, to get a, a bigger cut uh, than what you would get uh, out of a regular, uh, I would say, a, a wholesaler of uh, of dairy that uh, is buying his uh, production. So, what was the the, the, the initial thought there and why going that way and then uh, really like uh, having this whole in a way control of the of the value chain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The green premium, I mean, our product when you see it in Whole Foods, when you see it in Sprouts or Fresh Direct or Instacart, you'll see it is priced at market. It's an organic, it's a fantastically great milk. It's, a, it's organic milk, it's pasture raised. It's very nutrient rich. Uh, I can taste the difference between this and, and, and many, uh, many other, other milks. So it's a, it's a great product, um, but it's priced at market. Um, at the moment, there are bigger fluctuations in the business, whether through logistics, through packaging, supply, shrinkage, that uh, are bigger than at the, uh, if you like, the green premium that um, we're incurring by doing all of these projects. Clearly, we're spending a lot of money now on, on farmers. We're, we're also trying to build a brand. In the short term, from a purely company point of view, Guillaume, yeah, uh, my job, our job is to try and build that brand. So people are aware that they have these choices. So the real focus on the money and the sorry, the real focus on the money and the, the money that we've invested and the, the capital and the company is, is, to, is to grow that brand there will be a green premium there we're not sure where that's going to settle out we just don't know at the moment the uh the the products are priced uh to market um they're at the higher end of the dairy uh, they're absolutely at the higher end of the dairy category because they're organic pasture raised so you'll see that up with up the, the sort of top end of of where the uh, organic milks are um, i mean interestingly it is also a, a real objective of both mine and the companies and everybody in the company is that ultimately this is a, a product or a set of staple products that we want everybody maybe not maybe that's naive but not necessarily everybody but most people in america to be able to afford to be able to you know go as they say sort of six inches to the right or six inches to the left pull this product off and and it to be affordable so affordability is is a big goal for us because there's no point us producing some kind of high-end organic perennial pretzel not that that isn't a bad product and it's a really important product but if it's only available to a small then you, what have you done what you, it's just that it's all vanity at that point so affordability for this brand is key long-term objective so focusing on the offset part of it and i think this is like uh, also something very interesting that you guys put in place it's really like okay 
one neutron. Uh, we definitely know that uh, you know there is emission involved into the dairy production. We're working hard on uh, decreasing that with the farmers in terms of finding innovation that can help uh, on that measuring it. And then there's the remaining uh, that unfortunately, as of today, we're not able to uh, uh, to to remove. So we will offset it. So. How do you select those uh, those projects, uh, and how do you ensure that uh, in a way they do what they are promising in terms of uh, greenhouse gas, uh, you know, removals? Um, and uh, what is the percentage, uh, in a way, out of uh, um, regular, you know, bottle of milk that uh, you need to put into place to really like offset that? Uh, is it hundred percent that you are offsetting of that production? Or you realize that thanks to your effort, now you're reaching a certain percentage that uh, uh, is growing with the time and that you see will be uh, hopefully uh, very, very limited uh, at terms. Mm -hmm. Great set of questions there, of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's always a lot of questions, <laughs> but uh, please go exactly. ahead and, and shoot. <laughs> Let's start at the top with, with offsets. Um, and first of all, offsets are not bad. It's just that they're just not good enough. So offsets are not bad, they're just not good enough. So a, a decade ago, consumers would have been content with um, companies doing this sort of work by buying wind farm, offshore wind farm offsets or, or parts of the uh, Amazon rainforest offsets. I mean, perfectly valid way of going and genuinely having a positive impact on climate. But consumers are now demanding much more. And I know you've had other um, tech, um, you've had other climate tech companies on this podcast. So if you're in the cement industry, you need to sort, sort out the cement industry. If you're in the iron and steel industry, you need to sort, sort out the iron and steel industry. And in the, in the agricultural world, I'm not going to call it industry. In the agricultural world, you need to sort out agriculture. So everything that we do is within within agriculture. So ultimately, this company is going to be 100% of our own projects that we do on farms, though, at the moment, we're ramping up to that. When we can't actually um, offset the um, mitigation, or we can't mitigate or sequester what's the, the in, in this particular case, um, 13 pounds, 13 pounds of carbon. Um, when we can't uh, do that within our own projects, we will buy dairy offsets from within the dairy industry. So, so in that case, it, and not always, but significantly, um, anaerobic digesters so we're effectively investing in anaerobic someone else's project so when i say offsets they're investing in someone else's dairy project which is what we're doing ultimately the goal and it's in its and it's Anne who i mentioned earlier and, and the the team as a whole goals is to move ourselves to 100 percent of our own projects so we can actually point to um you know a huge array of portfolio projects to our consumers so what are the current uh, and expected economics of uh, of neutral? I mean, maybe if you can share a bit more with uh, with the audience, like what's your uh, what's your business model? Well, the business model is is really quite simple. Is this covenant, as I mentioned, between consumers and and farmers? We we're a brand on one end, and on the other end, we're working directly with uh, farmers and beef ranchers. And really everything else in between, we're working with partners and co-packers and, and logistics companies. And uh, so it's not our intent to invest heavily in that middle part. It is, is, is to, test the, to invest the maximum amount of capital we can and advice at the farm level and 
whatever else we do is to build the brand and connect with consumers. So if you're, is it like a dumbbell? I mean, that, that we work on either end, but we really don't work in the middle. We rely on fantastic set of partners in the middle. So finally, like, what is the, the size of the, uh, the market opportunity that uh, we're talking about? I mean, like, how are you planning to, to scale your operation? Because uh, uh, you seem to be very involved uh, at uh, the, the farm level, I think on the uh, um, retail point of view or like the, the selling the product in itself, uh, you guys uh, already achieved quite an interesting uh, scale by being uh, present in more than 2000 uh, stores across the US. But how do you ensure that, in a way, uh, the, the, the supplies part of it uh, is also growing? Because, uh, I mean, I guess to be present in the, those 2000 stores, you, you will need to uh, deliver a, a growing quantity of uh, their product. Um, so can you tell us a bit more like at, what are the next steps and this part of like, uh, in a way, uh, growing at uh, what we call at scale in the, in the venture world? So many of these markets that we're in are absolutely huge um and that's good for us but that's a i mean that's also why we're here we're in milk it's a 10 billion plus retail grocery retail market and uh cheese and milk and butters are in the sort of three to four to five billion markets in the u.s grocery markets these are enormous markets because that's where Um, that's what people are eating and that's where the farming impact is. So that's we're excited to be in really, really big markets because we have to be in really, really big markets to have, a, have, a, have an impact. And I think, um, you know, I've tasked the team with trying to make sure that we have the systems in place that we can grow and that we can scale. Um, you know, so not one of the systems to manage today's growth, but what systems do we need to have in place on the logistics sides, on the quality side, uh, on the ERP side? What, what are the systems that we need to have in place so that we can be a $100 million business in the next two to three years? I mean, that's the sort of task I'm asking the team to do. Is to, so it's, yeah, think about today, sure, but let's make sure we put all of these things in place so that we can grow, so that we're not scrambling at that level. And I think absolutely we can be a $100 million business within two or three years. So what's next for Neutron? Well, I think it's just it's just just do good work, uh, do good work on farmers, on farms and with farmers, uh, uh, do good, solid block and tackling work uh, on the retail side, move from 2000, uh, slightly over 2000 stores and uh, move to three to 4000 stores next year, uh, bring out one or two new products um, and then communicate. And then really communicate to consumers that this is a way that they can make a difference. Uh, and I think that's the that's where you'll see the escalation is. I think we've spent a year and a couple of years now getting the basics right. Now we need to find a way and, and test, uh, iterate and test ways of communicating, uh, communicating with them. I mean, is this the right way to do it? You know, is is this film is this milk fights climate change? Is it? too strong? Is it too weak? How do we how do we do that? When, how much do we spend on social media? How much um, do we do we do we go to traditional media? Do we do outboard, um, outside advertising? How do we well, what um, influences and uh, other people can help us tell the story? Who do we collaborate with? Um, this is an extraordinarily ambitious company. Again, actually, not really because of the numbers. Because of the impact 
you know, ambitious because we want to make an impact on farm. So that's uh, also uh, part of the uh, tradition in the in the show. What's what's your personal opinion uh, on the climate crisis? I mean, what would be your words uh, to to people who are like afraid of all the already visible consequences on a weekly basis that you can uh, see around the on the world? Uh, are we doomed? As I always ask, uh, what would you tell them? You know, it's uh, it was so interesting. Um, that I was teaching a, I was teaching a business school class the other day um, and fantastic group of, uh, of students, fantastic group of students. And they were all talking about, and I assume the interest, the fundamental interest would have been around climate. Um, and actually, when I talked to the professors afterwards and, and one thing and another, um, it was actually about uh, social justice was the biggest issue. And I thought that was in, in, intriguing because it seems to me that climate change is this sort of ever present, present issue. And, and then it made, made absolutely sense to me because, you know, you have a chance to influence some level of social justice and some of the unfairnesses that exist. Uh, climate change seems so unwieldy, so big and so, um, uh, so, so difficult to grapple with. Um, but I am optimistic because I think that there are tipping points, and it's an overused phrase. I think there are tipping points, and I don't think we've got there yet, in people's approach and people's um, way that they are going to influence. So that, you know, my point earlier about 54% of Americans, well, that hasn't transferred. I mean, 54% of Americans aren't voting with their, uh, with their purchases uh, and their actions. But at some point they will. At some point they will. Uh, and I see companies like this, and only just one of these companies, companies like this being conduit for that change. Um, so I'm, I'm really optimistic about that. Um, and I think you need to do what you can. You just need to do what's in your control. Um, and sometimes these issues seem too big, um, but you can make smaller local decisions that, that, that add up. And in, and in aggregate, that's very powerful. That's where you see real social change come through. So how can our listeners of, uh, you know, investors, founders, experts uh, around the world can, uh, can help you? Ah, well, they can buy our products. Uh, that, that helps drive change. Uh, they make people aware of, uh, of, of carbon neutral foods as a, as a, a really important category. Um, they can see as if this is a, a, a mechanism for, uh, for making great change. Um, and you know, I just, just, just to be the supporter of, of, of this type of company, it's, it's, it's not, it's not as technical as direct air capture. It's not as technical as the latest lithium battery, but oh my God, it's, 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 it's really powerful for making change. Any question I should have uh, asked you? I didn't do for this uh, first part of the interview. Um, no, other than, of course, my, my question to you, Guillaume, is, 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 is who are you and why are you doing this? Because it's been fascinating. I've enjoyed, very much enjoyed being able to, to link in and touch uh, a number of your, uh, I'm pointing at another screen over here, some of your podcasts, and you've had a fascinating array of people. So I'm, I'm going to, just, I'd love to just reverse the, for, for a few minutes, uh, reverse that question to you. 
Uh, thanks so much for interviewing me uh, in my own podcast. I, I love that, uh, Marcus. Uh, I mean, I think it's uh, it's quite simple. Uh, you know, I'm a dad now. Uh, I've always been passionate about nature. I've been fortunate to uh, spend eight years in, uh, in Silicon Valley and being uh, close to all of those uh, uh, entrepreneurs that were like uh, thinking that, you know, we don't take a no for an answer and we'll try to figure out how to make it work. And uh, I realized on the other side that uh, now this uh, climate uh, crisis, it's uh, not around the corner. It's really like on a day to day here. So, you know, it sounded to me uh, when uh, COVID hit and I had to completely change and pivot my, uh, my business of supporting founders uh, coming to Silicon Valley. Where could I, uh, you know, put my time and energy for? Uh, and it sounded like climate and uh, climate tech and, you know, founders uh, willing to, to also build uh, something meaningful there were the best way I could, uh, you know, I could put my energy and time. So therefore we, we started what we, uh, what we did. And uh, it's, uh, it's a, you know, exciting, difficult journey as well, full of doubt because, uh, you know, we're not uh, monetizing anything and we have time to time support, financial support that help us to do what we, uh, what we do. But at the same time, it's uh, so energizing. And uh, I think more and more, uh, you know, people in the traditional tech ecosystem, people in the uh, civil, you know, uh, I would say uh, the civilian job or work in itself uh, are willing to, you know, contribute to uh, supporting founders and, uh, and, and people who are changing. And then you have like amazing uh, investors like Bill Gates pushing uh, also capital towards there. What we realize is like founders need visibility. So what we do, it's really supporting them on that side uh, through the content that we produce, uh, sharing the voice of founders and, uh, and supporters like you and investors on the podcast was also a good way to have great conversation, but at the same time, being able to not keep that conversation just between the two of us uh, and spread that to others. And then uh, our main mission at Starbase Camp is like founders need capital. So how can we accelerate capital deployment towards those climate tech companies? Uh, and that's what we do with this matching uh, service. Now we work with more than 44 funds uh, around the world that have uh, a power of like 7.9 billion of capital to be deployed. We curate, we speak with founders, and then if we think that they make sense, we introduce them to, uh, to investors. And if investors want the connection, then we establish that connection. So really the motivation behind that is like, I don't feel anything more meaningful and fulfilling and exciting to be part of this decarbonization of the, the economy. Uh, I think on the business side, there's many things to be done and that are happening uh, investment side as well. And just, you know, um, next 40 years, I'm hopefully still there and after we'll see. <laughs> so why not to uh, spend my time on that? I don't yeah. know if it was a great answer. <laughs> oh my God, no, it was fantastic. <laughs> it was probably very long as well. I'm sorry, Mark. <laughs> oh, no, it was fantastic, fantastic. I want to take your time here. <laughs> and you've laid down, I think what your uh, your series has done is laid down uh, a narrative uh, which winds its way through both founders and investors that I think is, is extraordinarily interesting. And it's a, it's a, almost an encyclopedia of how you can you can do things and how things what things work and what things don't work um so i think it's a that's a that's a that's an important gift to the industry because you've 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 cataloged that in a very systematic way thank you and we're starting a new series called uh, the corporate one corporate series with salesforce so we'll speak with uh, 
those people in charge of the decarbonization ESG of the, the companies because often this is greenwashing and they are really doing stuff. They are struggling to uh, also find solutions. So probably many opportunities for uh, founders, but also uh, investors to jump into that uh, and supporting them or having them as clients. Uh, and I think they also deserve a, a voice, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. We'll not probably speak with ExxonMobil, but uh, uh, <laughs> we'll see. And even though I'm sure they have interesting stuff that are happening on their side. Thank you so much, Marcus, for your uh, time, your incredible insights uh, on the uh, dairy industry, on this incredible work that you do uh, to help consumers to uh, uh, one sip at a time uh, be able to uh, contribute in the fight of, uh, of climate change. Uh, very exciting to see an uh, incredible uh, you know, mind and uh, people like you uh, putting so much time and energy uh, to make this world, uh, this world a better world and, uh, and cleaner as well. So thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Really enjoyed this conversation. Wonderful conversation. I hope we get to speak again. Um, um, thank you for everything that you do. Hi, it's Guillaume again. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. As I said, do not hesitate to share an episode with a friend. Also, if you value the work we do for the climatic ecosystem, here is how you can contribute to it. Today, I'm asking for your support and a donation or sponsorship to make the work of our self-funded team more viable. Even a small contribution means a lot to us. In any case, I will invite you to subscribe to our channels and visit our website startupbasecamp.org to discover more episodes like this one and get your membership to access all our members' exclusive content. So remember, all of this is possible because of your support and donation. And we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. Let's keep in touch and I hope you will enjoy our next show with us. Thank you.